Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. Um, we are on Graham Brown here in Pitch Tech Asia studio in Singapore, joined by Joseph McConnell. Describes himself as an early stage healthcare technology investor. Joseph, welcome to the studio. Thanks so much, Graham, for having me today. Well, it's great to have you here. We've had some good conversations over the last few weeks. Got to learn a little bit about you and your day job, so to speak, running Verge Health Tech Fund. Um, you would describe yourself how as a sort of an early stage VC. How would you? What sort of box would you put yourself in? No, that's that's exactly it. Although the term early stage means different things to different people, right. so to maybe refine that a bit further, we like to be the first quote unquote institutional money that comes into a company, right? And typically, that means that we're investing alongside or just after angel investors. Okay. And I'm always curious because, you know, you, you came to our, our event the other day and we sat, there were six angels or investors around the table to our a demo day. And then I'm always curious to learn who are these investors, because if you come from the startup side of the world, you know, there, there's a lot of image of investors who are very much like the shark tanks. Mm. You know, they're quite, I've got five minutes, I'm getting on a, a plane. Like, are we in or not? That kind of image. That's obviously not you. No. Um, let's explore a little bit about the man himself and how he got into that world of becoming a VC. So at what point did you get your entry into becoming, uh, you know, managing your own fund? Where did that start? I guess there's, there's two entry points. There's a distant entry point in the past, which I kind of forgotten until I rediscovered it. And that leads to the more present one. So if I were to go back, I guess, 16 years ago, when I was uh, when I co-founded a med tech company that was doing real-time brain imaging using EEGs, so kind of like how a seismograph would detect the epicenter of an earthquake, we would have 32 electrodes that would try to detect where that electrical signal is coming from within the cerebral cortex. Mm. My first encounter with VCs was when I was sitting on the other end of the table asking them for money, and they saying no to me. And while we were obviously disappointed with the results, part of it could have been the timing and the place and the fact that we didn't know anything about business. But um, that impressed upon me uh, a desire to do something a bit more. Mm. And I really liked the fact that these VCs could actually, and I borrow this phrase from a friend, choose the future in which we live. So they're going to be presented with thousands of ideas, thousands of entrepreneurs trying to realize their dreams. And they get to basically, you know, take everything they've learned, have a hypothesis on the future, and then back those entrepreneurs which were aligned with that hypothesis. Now, I had kind of forgotten about the whole VC thing as a result of being a management consultant for the past seven years uh, before quitting and starting Verge. And I reconnected myself with this concept actually through angel investing. So uh, when I moved to Singapore through my job at Oliver Wyman uh, five years ago, you know, our clients were basically asking us to help them find innovative healthcare companies to either partner with or to invest in. And when we were going around the region looking for such companies, we didn't find too many actually. And then the ones that we did find were a bit too early for these large multinationals or PE firms or, or whatnot to actually do something meaningful with. And they were also trying to raise that first check. 
and not having a very, uh, you know, consistent success doing that. And as a consequence of, you know, I guess being in the right place at the right time, going from a high tax bracket to a low tax bracket, I decided, well, you know what, why don't I start investing in these companies? Mm. And as an individual, yeah, as an individual. So I started angel investing in these companies. Had you any experience of being an angel investor before? No. Right. No, no. So funny enough, our first angel investment, and I say our because my wife and I are kind of like a team mm. and she helps me find some companies, does the whole gut check on people where I usually do the technical due diligence and product market fit. And uh, our first one was actually a Canadian company, but we didn't make the angel investment until we'd relocated to Singapore, uh, partially because we, we didn't have any money in Canada. Right. To angel invest. Um, so we, uh, we started with this one. She was actually my mentee. So she was doing a um, cervical sample self-collection. And the funny thing is you had all these things out there trying to basically do a, a pap smear or an STI mm. test remotely, but none of them had really been designed by a woman before. And that's oh. kind, of a, kind of a given that, yeah. you know, you want someone who can actually relate with the anatomy to actually be the one designing it. So they designed a very ergonomically friendly and very cheap device. And because she was my mentee, I didn't even think about, you know, what's the ROI? What's the, you know, you know financial benefit? I just wanted to show my support for this entrepreneur. Right. Uh, gradually, you know, this shifted more towards, you know, is this going to be a really big company one day with other investments or... You know, does this add a lot of value in an underserved segment of society sort of uh, right. perspective? And the reasons for angel investing vary from investment to investment, and they also vary from investor to investor. Uh, one day, I actually had a chance to step off the hamster wheel, as, as you're aware, you know, professional services and, and you know, work-life balance don't exactly work together with one another. So I had a chance to actually step off the hamster wheel for a moment and reflect on the past 10 angel investments, which, uh, which we had made by that time. And the numbers looked really good. And then I realized to myself, the only reason I really go to work every day is to feed this hobby of right. angel investment. And there were more opportunities to make, you know, meaningful, good investments than I personally had capital to do. So then the next logical choice was, well, Become a fund. Yeah, become a fund. Well, actually, the first choice was join a fund. Uh, but I couldn't really find any VC funds who were operating both at the stage and with the investment thesis I thought was most compelling at this time. Right. Let's, let's back up a little bit. Sure. I'm fascinated by this journey. Starting out, that first check that you wrote, can you tell us how much you wrote it for? Oh, I don't remember, but it wasn't large. It might have been $20,000. 20000 Canadian dollars. So yeah. Sing 30000 About the same. Yeah, okay. Right, so no, 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 our dollar is uh, pretty much... <laughs> okay. Yeah, th this is time sensitive, this podcast, yeah. so it may change. So, okay, so 20,000, but that was the first check you'd written. You hadn't written a check like that before as an angel investor, right? Oh, no, I've never written a check like that for anything, actually. Right, okay. So what was that experience like for you? Because you very much, I'm, I, I understand, made that investment on that person. I get it. You know, you've, you've mentored that person as well. So you know them quite well, right? But you were writing a check without really going deep into the numbers or was it sort of, how, how do you, you know, if you were to like write down the criteria in which you made that decision, I want to understand how you did that and also how that's changed over time. You know, what have you learned in terms of, you've done 10 now when you've quit Oliver Wyman, right? Yep. So go way back to number one. What do you think was the main factor you were investing in then? 
The main factor were, were, were twofold. One, I felt like I had a, a personal connection with the founder as well as an obligation to show my support beyond simple words and time. Uh, that was the overwhelming factor. The second factor was she was solving a real problem because a lot of people, especially in places where you know women don't have a chance to see doctors very often, you know, by the time they finally get out of the house to see the doctor, it's stage four cancer and it's a death sentence. And before it's a death sentence, it destroys the family. And these are, these are largely preventable. So if you have something that you can take at home, you know, cost a dollar or two, mm. mail it in or drop it off and then get the results discreetly, you can then seek action. And then you can avoid a lot of pain and hurt and cost actually in all this. Um, that, that was the, you know, I would have invested her in, in her regardless, because she was my mentee. Mm. Uh, but I think the reason I wrote, say, 20 instead of 10 instead of 5, and then felt, you know, quite like no regrets about the investment was really because she was trying to solve a real problem. Mm. So you obviously <clears throat> have learned a lot in that. And sometimes I've, I've heard it, and maybe you can verify this, is that they say your biggest loss was your biggest lesson. Like you learn most as an investor from, you know, where you've lost money, right? You don't really learn until you lose money. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of angel investors out there at the moment, but how many have actually lost money from the checks they've written? So a maybe, lot. Yeah. Okay. So can you tell us a little bit about that, you know, in sense of what did you learn from some of the losses you've made and what have you learned now? Also, you're, I mean, investing as a fund is a little bit different in terms Absolutely. of your, your mindset as well. So maybe sort of let's go from investment number one to number 10 when you were leaving Oliver Wyman. And you were now saying, I'm only actually working now to fund my hobby, which is really the angel investment and the numbers are looking good. So tell us about where you were at that stage. How far were you in? How old were these, you know, what sort of stage were these investments and so on? A lot of questions there. Maybe I yeah. can back out at the start with the lessons learned from the journey. Um, I think that I, I've been quite lucky in that not a lot of failures have occurred. I think more so delays because nothing's actually dead yet out of the healthcare investments. Um, I think the only time I've ever really lost money is when I've not invested in healthcare. So I invested in a couple of tech startups, mm. also playing the public markets, derivatives, um, things that I don't fully understand, I think I have a much higher chance of losing money in. Uh, and, but, but, you know, everything could fail tomorrow. And then it'd be interesting post-mortems on why that was the case. Uh, but in terms of lessons learned along the journey, uh, both with the tech and the healthcare technology companies that I've invested in in the past, really, you have to really make sure that there's a technical foundation. I mean, First and foremost, the tech has to be there, it has to be good, and it has to be different. Uh, secondly, just investing in the tech is certainly not enough. You need a team mm. that has complementary skill sets in both business and tech. And, you know, tech, I also kind of, kind of include the whole clinical know-how and awareness of the ecosystem and how doctors behave and how products are bought, how the distribution works, that technical knowledge in addition to the actual technology itself. And sometimes that understanding of how the health system works is more valuable than technology depending on the problem. Mm. 
But if you have a team that is deficient in one of those components, the chances of success, success are very low. And I know there's that old uh, saying that uh, an A team with a B product will always beat a B team with an A product. And I've personally seen that many times. Mm. And I was interested in helping a bunch of startup companies while I was still in Toronto. I never had the money to invest, but I had the opportunity to help them with business planning or with licensing and, you know, maybe earning a bit of sweat equity in that way. And I've seen a lot of failures and I'd say most of my failures were, were, were there with those companies failing to reach international scale or failing to reach their objectives. And it's largely the, the, the team and talent reason as opposed to the technology reason. And I see parallels in this in almost every tech ecosystem I visit. And the only ones where it's consistently good are probably Israel, Bay Area, and uh, the, the Cambridge, Boston area as well. Interesting. You're talking about talent here, Joseph. Yeah. And I'm a great believer that investment <clears throat> really is identification of talent and how good you get at identifying patterns. Mm-hmm. Now let's sort of back up a little bit in terms of what you've learned. Let's sort of put a little bit of context in here as well. I mean, I read Paul Graham saying that the thing, you know, what we have to know about investment is two things. Firstly, that the returns are concentrated in a very few in your portfolio. I mean, obviously the one in 10 examples to get three X and so on. And yet the other part, which I really want to throw over to you, because I'm fascinated how you have managed to identify talent in this context is that, pretty much the best ideas are disguised as bad ideas when you first see them, you know, like when presented with, I think it was, it may even be Paul Graham when he was first presented with Facebook. He says, no, it's a, it's a student website. You know, what's the point? Just doing nothing, hanging around on a website or, or Airbnb was the same or Uber was the same. Yet if it was obvious, you know, if you go to a pitch competition, it's the obvious ones that get rewarded, right? Where it's, yeah, it's the bad ideas, you know, bad ideas that people say, oh, I don't get it. That are the ones that take somebody to spot that and say, hang on a second, maybe I can talk to you. These guys don't get it, but I want to have a chat with you because I really see something you're doing there. With that in mind, how do you then identify that? You know, how do you, do, do you go out and look for those black swans or do you just look for something that's sort of in the mid range? As an investor, what is your sort of, you know, algorithm for identifying those? That's a great question. I think this idea of finding the, the diamond in the rough is when you're looking for something that's going to return you a thousand X. I personally think that healthcare is too fragmented to really give you consistent, you know, options of 1000 X unless you're investing in a blockbuster drug. And that to me, frankly, is like playing a lottery. And my own background is deeply in biotech, you know, doctorate in biophysics, did drug development, helped pharma companies with R&D and portfolio strategy for the first half of my consulting career. And I still firmly believe that it is a bit of a lottery. And that lottery needs deep pockets. And us being a small fund, we, we, can't, we can't do that. And also, us being activists, we can't add value. It either works or it doesn't as a drug. So in healthcare, I think, there are enough problems that you can have consistently good hits. And then the question becomes, you know, are you addressing a problem that is meaningful and large enough that others haven't tried to address yet or others have addressed poorly? And then if you have the team that has the complementary capabilities of both business and, and technical, you know, are they going to be smart enough to figure it out even if version one's wrong, version two is wrong, mm. version three is wrong? 
moreover, we, we also do something a little bit uh, sneaky, which is, you know, instead of looking for the team or the technology that's a diamond in the rough, we look for companies in markets where the investment community is not very mature. And that way we can get the low valuations mm. that, you know, you might not find in the Bay Area for doing something that might be technically equivalent. So what is that? Is that geographical? Yes. Right. So you're going into markets where there isn't a mature investor ecosystem who haven't priced in all the potential gains in this particular asset, right? Correct. And healthcare already is a hard sector to invest in. And there's a lot of mispricing that happens in these markets. And typically at the early stage, at the, at, at the seed stage rather, they're mispriced downward. And then the expectations of the angels are actually quite high. Like they want their money back in three years or they want, you know, 40% of your company for something that maybe university invested two or $3 million in R&D and before coming in, you know, and they're just going off of the uh, projected cash flows or something like that, which are almost inevitably wrong anyways. Hmm. So we look for opportunities in, in more, more like neglected markets. So we, we like to say scrappy entrepreneurs, the crappy investors. Right. Because by the time they're on our radar, they must have survived something. Because we're, we're not on the ground in Belarus, we're not on the ground in Latvia, we're not on the ground in South Africa. So if they come to our attention, they must have survived something. So rewind that a bit a bit. Scrappy entrepreneurs, crappy investors. Make crappy investors or what, what was the connection there? So no, no, I understand no. so, so markets in which you have scrappy entrepreneurs and crappy investors. Ah, okay, right. Okay, that's yeah. the win-win. That's the perfect yeah. scenario for you, right? Where you've got entrepreneurs who've had to sort of survive by the law of the jungle and not uneducated, but underdeveloped ecosystems. These, these are the biggest upsides yeah. for you, right? Because other markets, you, you, the upsides are harder to find, right? The outsized returns aren't there for you. Agreed. Right? Agreed. Okay. And there are markets, you know, if we're, if we're present locally and we're here all the time, we have the opportunity to meet with a lot of entrepreneurs before they're even raising money. So that's right. helpful here. But outside of, say, Singapore and Southeast Asia and even North Asia, where we, where we have stronger presence as well through my partner, um, you know, we don't, we, don't, we don't necessarily have this opportunity outside. Got it. Understood. I, I think to my real estate investment um, days that, you know, most uh, retail buyers would buy the properties that they'd see in the fancy marketing suites, you know, with all the little sort of models and, you know, the, the ideal families all sort of walking around the developments and so on. Yeah. As a real estate investor, I look for the properties where I've got cat piss smelling carpets, right? Because you can go in and that's literally it. You know, you can go in and think, see the upside's huge because retail investors, they're sort of your crappy investors, right? Yeah. Buying, they, a, they buying a five bedroom house in Dearborn, Michigan for $30,000. Yeah, exactly. With no the, copper pipes. You can see, yeah. well, if I put those pipes in and put central heating in, boom, you know, maybe I can get a real upside here, but a retail investor won't touch this, right? So... You're looking for those mispriced assets and that real upside, right? So now that you take this into the world of a fund, do you have different kind of um, requirements for investing in terms of what you look for? Would you look for the same kind of things you'd invest in as an angel as well? It's changed. Uh, I mean, the fiduciary duty of managing other people's money means you need to be a lot more careful. And when you do make an investment, you have to make an investment with those investors in mind. So the time horizon has to be compatible with the fund life. You know, you do have to ensure that financial returns 
are a key objective. So it's not like I like what you're doing and right. I kind of want to support you. Here's some money. It's more like, can this company be five to ten times more valuable than it is today within eight years? So do you you have an investment committee that decides yeah. on that? They would be some of your LPs who sit around and no, it's purely internal. So right. it's the it's the three of us. Yeah, because we've you know rightfully or wrongfully been in this market for a long time, and we figure that uh, we should make the call at least for this first fund. It's a small fund. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then how does it come down to the finding of these these startups? Because th this must be the challenge, isn't it? Because you're you're looking for the ones like you say who. Or maybe in the rough, or maybe in markets which are not obvious that they don't have the access to all the lists and so on. And, and you're a small fund, right? Yeah. You know, you've got three full time staff in there in the committee, right? So not even 2.2. 2.2. All right, there you go. So how do you then go and find these, you know, th those that can get those 10 to 15 times returns? So it's a great question. We've been very lucky. Actually, we have more companies in our pipeline than we know what to do with. And in fact, you know, part of our urgency in, in, in raising our fund, because we just started raising six months ago, and actually yesterday was our six-month anniversary. Mm, congratulations. Uh, thank you. Uh, you know, it, that, it's really to take advantage of these opportunities. But if you were to ask where are these coming from, and we did an analysis a couple of months back on our pipeline, and 30% of them are coming from conferences. So right. conferences regionally are a great way to attract and pull people from surrounding geographies. Also, some of the larger conferences like Slush have a Global Impact Alliance coming in as a nonprofit, bringing companies from Africa or from, mm. you know, the former Soviet republics or India or somewhere to have exposure to the conference. And usually a lot of the investors that go to Slush, for example, just, just this one example, are a little bit uh, timid in investing in some of these more frontier markets. For, for various reasons. Mm. Um, so that's one great source. About 30% uh, of our pipeline comes from conferences. And we do tend to be quite prolific when attending these conferences. 19% of our pipeline comes from other startup referrals. So, so your portfolios? Yeah. So by virtue of having invested in 10 companies across four continents, the CEOs of these companies, re you know, quite regularly refer us to companies that they think are good. And that's actually been the source of the highest quality pipeline. Right. Because they've already cut through all the BS. There's a lot of people that kind of, you know, embellish the facts a little bit, over-represent what they're trying to do or where they've gotten. So we kind of get the real deal from these entrepreneurs. Mm. And if we weren't, you know, entrepreneur-friendly, if we weren't, you know, founder-friendly, we wouldn't have gotten these referrals. And so that's one thing that we really consistently emphasize. I mean, we're not pushovers, but at the same time, we, we, we do want to keep what's in the entrepreneur's uh, objectives as, as forefront because, you know, it's hard enough doing a startup. It's even harder if you've got, you know, antagonistic investors questioning yeah. your every move. And does that happen? Oh, no, yes. not with you, but. Obviously. Oh, no, no, no. It happens all the time. Right. All the time. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. Right. And is that then because of the the conflict of interest between the returns and the investors and the entrepreneurs' objectives? Actually, I, I don't think it's that because honestly, mm. the, both the investor and the entrepreneur want the company to grow. If the entrepreneur doesn't want the company to grow, yeah. I would have hoped that would have been flagged quite early. 
you know, when you ask the entrepreneur, you know, where do you see yourself in 10 years yeah. or how do you see this uh, going to the next level? Mm. If that's not there, then, you know, hopefully you wouldn't have made the investment. Mm. So it's, I think honestly, it's either a combination of, you know, maybe the entrepreneur is sometimes making a bad call, uh, maybe having the wrong strategy, making some wrong decisions that leads to an investor becoming more and more insecure and feeling the need to kind of uh, write the ship just as it's hurtling towards the yeah. iceberg. And then, manage a little and, then, and then you're fighting over that navigation wheel and then you hit the iceberg because you can't figure out whether to go left or right. So what role does a fund like you or should a fund like you play in all of that that, you know, obviously you're for, small enough to have very personal relationships with your your portfolio, yet, you know, you don't have the, the ability to fly all over the world and service them all the time. So there's that limit as well. Yet, you know, there's this thought, there's this idea that the, the key difference between venture investing and, and speculation is mm -hmm. that you add real value. You Correct. know, if you're speculating on Apple or Tesla stock, you know, you can't really add any value to that. You can't go and phone up Elon and said, look, I've got an idea for you. I don't like what you did in the, the recent S release or whatever, right? Yet you can have an impact on your startups. And is that something specifically you look for, something you apply? And how does that actually work in practice? That's a great question and observation. That is what drives us. Um, that's one reason why we really like to invest as the first money, because then the entrepreneur and us, we're starting on this journey together. So there isn't kind of a strongly embedded idea of what is the right path. Because by the time you're investing in series A or series B, the path to market is more or less set. Here mm. in the seed stage, it's quite malleable. And one of the things that we do want to bring in is, is our expertise you know, our understanding of various different markets, uh, both in Asia and in Europe, US, as well as, you know, our, our network. We know a lot of the top pharmaceutical companies who might be their future buyers, same with med device insurers, tech companies, and also digital health companies that are a bit further along the journey than they are. Hmm. We also look for portfolio synergies. Can companies we invested in last month help the company we just invested in this month because they have some areas of overlap? And we also like to hold, you know, strategy sessions, retreats. We just had a strategy session in Tallinn, Estonia for one of our uh, companies that's doing a digital stethoscope that's uh, quite AI empowered. So we, we do like to be hands-on. You know, I was a consultant for seven years and mm -hmm. I, I can't exactly abandon that training. Um, so when you go to a strategy session like this one in Tallinn, you're actively involved hands-on with the Yeah, company. we're leading it. Okay. Yeah. So that's something that's really important to us. Mm. And the other important thing to us is that entrepreneurs, you know, they don't have to do everything we ask by any means, but they do have to listen. They do have to have an open mind. And yeah. testing for that is something that we, you know, is something that's very important during the investment process. So even if we see a great company with a great product, great team, if they're stubborn as nails, we probably will not invest. How do you test that? Uh, usually kind of asking a lot of really deep and uh, biting questions on their overall strategy, um, why they're doing things a certain way, why they're going after a certain segment, their rationale for making the product, you know, their own, you know, personal stories and paths. It mm. takes time. Right. You want to see if A, what they're being open and transparent with you, because therefore, you know, you can build that relationship and, you know, you can have an impact, but also any advice or feedback that you give them. They may not agree with it, but to onboard it and then, you know, the next time you meet that person, see if anything's changed or had an impact as a result of that. That's right? exactly it. Yeah. And, and the perfect time for us to meet startups is actually when they don't need money. 
So then we could kind of, you know, have that conversation for right. six to eight months, see how they change things, see whether they take any of our advice or even just, you know, even if they completely refute it and say, this is garbage and this is why this advice is garbage, that's fine. Right. But they've given you a reason. They've yeah. listened to it. It's not yeah. like they said, whatever you say, you're wrong and I'm right. They actually listen to you, entertain the idea and then come back. Correct. And, and we're pleasantly surprised that, you know, more than half of the founders that we've met and, and, and spoken with at length are, are showing this and only a minority we've had to say, you know, you know, we love what you're doing, but yeah, sorry, we can't. Yeah. It's a personal. Yeah. So you said, and I'm interested, Joseph, that you, the best time to meet a startup is when they don't need money. How does that actually happen? Because I'm sure like even being on the show now, people are going to say, Joseph runs a fund, I need to talk to him because I'm raising funds. So you're going to get a lot of that. But then how does it happen outside of that, this ideal situation where somebody isn't raising money? Because your, your time is really absorbed in A, your portfolio, B, your LPs, and C, you know, raising new funds for everybody. So how do you fit all that in? Uh, it's tough. I mean, we, we, we're actually very, very busy. Um, I think I think the the rationale for doing it before they're raising money is, you know, then you have an opportunity to really know the entrepreneur when maybe they're not putting on the whole dog and pony show when mm. they're not in pitching mode. So you can actually genuinely talk about some of their problems, what they're trying to do, and kind of build that friendship with the with the entrepreneur and see if you actually can build a friendship with the entrepreneur. Because again, I think. You know, they talk about this in job interviews uh, all the time. If you can't sit next to the person for, an, you know, for a long haul flight, then you don't want to work with that person. Yeah. And I think the same extends true to an investor and an investee relationship. And I think even more so because then you're guaranteed married for the next, uh, you know, six to eight years. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's key, isn't it? You're going to be together for that long. Yeah. Right. So you want to test out that relationship. Do Is that sort of initiated by you and the fund or is that where a startup comes to you and says, I just want to have a chat, have a coffee? It's both. Right. It's both. It's been both situations, actually. Right. But how, how do you identify them? Like, because, oh. you know, when, so, when they're so in when pitching mode, they have the numbers together and you can see if it's BS or not. But at this early stage, you just sort of, oh, I saw somebody at a conference. They're really interesting. Yeah. Let's have a chat. Is that really yeah. how it happens? Or, or, or we get a founder or an angel or you know, some, or a venture partner. And we haven't talked to anything about our venture partners, which are crucial to our fund success. Cause yeah. again, we're a small team. Um, when they say, Hey, I know this guy or girl and you want to talk to them. Okay. Yeah. Fine. And I trust their judgment in saying like, cause they know what we're looking for. They know our philosophy. They know our process more or less. So then, you know, happy to have a chat cause they've already pre-filtered this. Yeah. Uh, cold calls are very, very difficult. You know, I get a lot of random solicitation on LinkedIn, on email. I even have, you know, entrepreneurs calling me on my phone at weird hours. And, you know, that's really, really difficult because I, I have no basis. I have no context and guaranteed 100% they're in pitching mode. Yeah. And they don't respect you or your time as well. So let, let's talk about mm. how we can help startup founders and entrepreneurs better interface with people like you and not just those in healthcare, but generally VCs, early stage funds as well, maybe. Um, you mentioned, for example, like referrals and how important that is. What other, I mean, how, how do they interface a bit better in the sense that, you know, 
we've seen some horror stories in terms of the pitches and so on. You've all sat on the other side of it. You know, are you available to invest and all that sort of nonsense? But yeah, after a meeting for five minutes, you're right, yeah. exactly. So ha they just, but it's not necessarily a case of them being stupid. They just may not know what the language is that they need to speak to, you know, connect with you. You, you came to our event the other day, and after the pitches, we had all the, you know, the Q and A as well. So you saw a good range of people and different kind of levels, different sectors, not necessarily related to healthcare. And you sat and we, we did the Q&A and you asked some great questions some very probing, direct questions. In that corner, we had the fund corner, you and Sam, which is great because yep. the tough questions were coming from over there, right? Which I loved it because everybody had, the, like you said, different investors, different hypotheses and different needs, right? Um, First of all, let's talk about that. What are your sort of takeaways from sitting with those startup founders? And also, how can we help them, you know, get up that sort of learning curve to better communicate what they need to do to, you know, open the doors to your kind of world, right? So let's talk about that feedback first without getting specific about anybody in particular. What was your feedback from the Q&A session? Actually, I thought it went quite fine. Um, there was a great diversity of startups that came in various, you know, sectors, stages, objectives, and, and that was really cool to see. I think that's one of the great joys as investors is that we get exposed to all of this. I forget who said it. Um, there was a Chinese VC, and I'm, I'm completely forgetting his name, who said that we don't try to predict the future. We learn about the future from the startups who pitch to us. And if we see recurring patterns, then maybe that's a trend that we ought to pay attention to. It's very pragmatic. Mm. And I actually tend to agree with that because VCs can't be everywhere at any time. And a lot of VCs are, you know, preoccupied with trying to sound like they know the future, sound very smart uh, in order to draw that. But honestly, it's those who's, you know, who are in the labs or who are in the trenches and trying to really start these new companies that really know where the future is going to be. And I thought that's really, really cool. And I got a lot of uh, enjoyment from that when I go to events like yours as well. Uh, in terms of the founders themselves, I think, you know, the most important thing when you're an angel investor, when you're a very early investor, you know, the entrepreneur has no track record in that company. They may have created a company in the past that went really well, but how much is that was them versus market versus their co-founders versus other serendipitous factors? So the very first thing that founder has to do is build trust. And it's very hard to build trust in, in five minutes. So then that's the challenge I think I pose to all these entrepreneurs. Hmm. How do you make yourself trustworthy or show that you're genuine with your pitch and intentions? Because there is no track record, there is no data, there is no traction. Yeah, th this is the challenge for a founder, isn't it? It's, they've got to do the due diligence on the angels as well and identify who you are yep. and what your hypotheses are. And that's the trust building, isn't it? And when somebody can say, you know, and maybe you can share an example where somebody's got this really right with you. If they, hey, Joseph, I saw you speak at this conference or I saw this podcast, I, you know, I listened to what you said and that really struck a chord with me. You know, that shows that this person isn't necessarily a time waster and, and cares about what you think about as well, right? So wh where have people been successful in this in the past with you? And you thought, actually, this person's really done their homework with me, you know, and I feel that I trust them all, you know, on the basis purely of the fact that they've gone to some length to understand what we're about and not waste our time. A good question. Out of the ones, so out of the ones that 
we've invested in. So as a fund, we've invested in five companies. As an angel, I've invested in 10. And I'm trying to think of the number of examples where they successfully pitched me and we said yes, because a lot of the time we actually proactively reached out to the entrepreneurs. But the one time, the one time, uh, and I think it was our, our second investment in the fund. And this one was around someone who actually did do their homework. They asked, who are the, you know, health tech investors in, in Singapore? You know, I'm going to do the homework on them. It seems like your thesis is, is matched with uh, what we're trying to do. And I was impressed that they did some of their homework. Mm. And, you know, we had a very good rapport. He was actually an ex-VC himself, uh, which also helped because he understood both sides of the table. Uh, so it, very respectful of the time. The process was very straightforward. Right. In most cases, you've gone out and sourced these though. Yep. Rather than inbound. Correct. But you get a lot of inbound as well. I do. Roughly how much do you get a week? Pitches. Oh, it depends. Um, probably 10 or 20. Pitch decks. Yep. Right. And do you actually look at them? Yes. I look at every single every one. Every single one of them? Every single though, one. Right. And how many pitch decks, so on the inbound, how many pitch decks do you think you'd actually look at to see a deal that's worth taking to, at least to coffee stage and having a chat? One in 10, one in 50? One in 20. One in 20? Yep. Right. So you look at 20 and then the next step is to talk to this person. Because yeah. honestly, a lot of them don't do their homework. Yeah. So we're a seed stage health tech fund. So I get a lot of molecules. So we don't do biotech. Right. I get a lot of people looking to raise $5 million at some ungodly valuation. Um, you know, so, so there's, there's a big sieve. So we've, you know, we counted like last year, we screened 2000 companies. We met with about 150 CEOs. We decided to keep in touch with, uh, 80 or 90 companies and some of them, you know, drop off. Some of them we've actually invested in, uh, so our, our active pipeline usually sits at around 60 companies. Right. So so, so we're going from 2,000 to yeah. 60. Those are your numbers. How, how does yeah. that compare generally to other VCs, A, in, in sort of early stage and also the larger VCs? I mean, you're about 30 yeah. to 1, right? Yeah. So. I, don't, I don't have, you know, industry-wide data, but I do remember from a Vertex Ventures keynote that I think it was something like 10,000 pitches made it to 13 investments. Wow. And one in a thousand. Yeah. Just under. Yeah. So um, how do you improve your odds as a startup founder? How do I go from, you know, those kind of crazy odds to getting it right down to 50-50? I think the key thing is do your homework. Um, it's important to see if there's a founder investor fit. And I know that personally, we haven't been very good about making public our criteria simply because we're still kind of in the formation phase. We haven't really kind of, you know, turned on the lights and say, hey, we're here, come to us. Uh, we, we haven't done that yet. Mm. But a lot of other VC funds, you know, right there, thesis, read it, you know, look at the other, look at their portfolio, look at what they've invested in the past and say, hey, do I see myself as fitting in with this family of companies. Mm. And if the answer is no, then, well, you know, the, you know the answer right away. And, and don't think that, oh, you know, we're, we're, we're a bit later stage, or maybe we're not quite in this industry. Let's try our luck anyways. Um, you could, but I think there's a higher chance than not, then you'll just irritate the VC. Yeah, because they, they have a mandate. 
you know, if they have a stated investment mandate, their investors kind of expect that they stick to it. Mm. Would it help then if you were pitching or introducing yourself to an investor to actually say, and we're like this company in your portfolio? Would that help them? Um, I think that's a two, I think that's a double-edged sword mm. because it's like, if we're like this company in our portfolio, then why do we need you? Cause we already have it. And right. chances are, you know, we're, we're a bit proud of our company. So we think it's the best. Yeah. You because, could be competition. Yeah, exactly. You don't want to fund them. Right? Yeah. At the same time, it's like, okay, I see how you can fit like this company yeah. and maybe you want to have a further discussion. So it is a bit of a double-edged sword. I would say that instead of saying we're like this company, it's we're like this group of companies that you've previously invested in based on these common characteristics. Yeah. What a great start. Yeah. Um, we could go on for forever talking about advice and your thoughts on what startup founders could do to help interface with investors. And um, but I'm conscious of the time, Joseph. And I, you know, a bit of backstory to this this conversation today. You said this was your first podcast. It was actually. It's the first one I've ever done in my life. And how was the experience for you? Um, I have to say, it's a pretty cool studio. Um, I like the acoustics. It's a, you know, it's always great when you have a wonderful interviewer uh, to make the process easier. Yeah. Well, there you go. I'm sure checks in the post and all that. So, <laughs> um, but I, I thought you did really well. I mean, in terms of like giving some real solid advice and I find that this would be really useful for founders and investors as well, because there's a lot of people looking at investment, they're in investment and looking for role models and people want to get into this sector as well. And we have this thing in Asia, there's a lot of high net worth individuals who would like to consider themselves angel investors who aren't really, but they don't have great role models or examples to play mm -hmm. with. I mean, they have Shark Tank, Dragon's Den, and maybe Crazy Rich Asians. Like, how, how are you <laughs> supposed to invest your money, right? It's not a great sort of, you know, choice to pick from, right? But, you know, when people are out there saying, this is how we do investment, this is what we do. I think that helps people understand what kind of mindset and personality you need to be successful at this, right? So um, I've really enjoyed that and listening to your story as well. It's inspiring as well. You know, six months in, like where you are now, this is just the beginning, right? And you said you haven't turned the lights on and announced that you're out there. Well, you just have. So. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> don't go back now, Joseph. I, I would love, I mean, I don't know your thoughts about this, but I'd love you to come back on a regular basis. When it, I know you travel a lot, but whenever we can and come back and maybe do some AMA, some like ask sure. me anything from the investor community, from founders, like, hey, Joseph, like, I'm trying to do this or what are your thoughts on this? And, you know, it could be specific to healthcare, could be investors asking questions, you know, about angels asking you questions and also funds, early stage funds asking you questions as well. So, you know, I think there's a demand for it out there for sure. Yeah, I'd be honored. Uh, I think that'd be fun and awesome. uh, meaningful. Great. Well, that is out there then. Let's try and make that happen. You, you are a man who travels constantly. So we'll have to catch you. Yeah. Where's next? Uh, next is Hong Kong. Right. Next Tuesday. You're heading off to Hong Kong. You're going for quite a while, aren't you? So. I'm going for about 10 days. So it's yeah. Hong Kong, China for factory visit, back to Hong Kong for more meetings, Taiwan, then Malaysia. Right. And then back. Yep. I know. And we have many conversations about sleep as well. So yes, I think we have the root cause of what's disrupting your sleep there, but there's not too bad. They're all kind of in the same time zone. So Joseph Meccano, everybody, um, what's the best way for people to reach you? Because I'm conscious of the conversation we just had. That Email. That, Email is the best. And yep. the, the worst way to reach you is to send you an email with a presentation attached and saying, take a look at this. 
Um, that's okay as long as there is that fit. Right. If you think there's a fit there, that's fantastic. Then that saves me asking you. You know, thanks for reaching out. Do you mind sending me some more information? Yeah. Because I'm never going to make a decision based on you know a paragraph. And the other thing is, a lot of people want to meet before they send anything. And you know, if if I could, I would. But if I were to say yes to every face-to-face -face meeting request, I wouldn't have time to actually do work. Yeah, you got to run a business. Yeah, exactly, and fly around a lot as well. So. Yeah. Tell them that you've uh, tell Joseph that you listen to this podcast or watch the video, and then said that's also helpful. Yeah, then they understand what your your thesis is, what your mandate, and that sort of knows that they're not wasting your time, right? Yeah. Joseph Meccano, everybody, early stage healthcare technology investor. Thank you so much for coming to the studio today. Uh, thanks so much, Graham, for having me. It was a lot of fun. Really enjoyed it. Let's do part two. Yep, sounds good. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.